Hey everybody, I'm Francesca Maxime and this is Wise Girl and I'm here at the special conversation today with Deborah King. She is a New York Times bestselling author. Her first book, Truth Heals, What You Heal Can't Hurt You, uh, was a bestseller and she also just released the Simon & Schuster publication, Heal Yourself, Heal the World. Uh, again, uh, an amazing author and uh, spiritual somebody who's worked in the space for a long time on her own personal journey and her own work in addition to uh, having graduated from uh, UC Davis in Northern California with a law degree and was a practicing attorney before uh, all of this stuff as well. So Deborah, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today where we're trying to further the conversation about Me Too and Time's Up to include family sexual abuse otherwise known as incest. So yeah, thank you. yeah, no, I'm, I'm uh, um, very interested in talking about this. So thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to, um, to talk to you. And, you know, I think that one of the things people don't pay a lot of attention to is the fact that this happens in the home under uh, our noses and half of the, you know, girls that are experiencing abuse, because mostly it is girls, although it does happen to boys as well. And we don't want to neglect that fact. Um, but the majority of cases, it's girls. Um, nobody ever talks about it. Uh, and you have a personal experience about this. So I want to know if you could share your story briefly with us. Uh, so I um, did not start to think about the abuse that I had experienced until I was um, in, in my 20s. I was uh, just out of law school, actually, kind of uh, planning on taking the uh, corporate world by storm. And I woke up with cancer one day. Uh, and I was not yet 25, and I, I was like, hmm, the, you know, there must be something really wrong with uh, this picture. And uh, besides getting immediate uh, diag diagnostic help and direction from doctors, I thought, you know, maybe I can go deeper here. Maybe there's uh, some emotional cause. And I had never really wanted to think about my life. I was just, uh, you know, moving so fast that I thought it wouldn't be necessary. But I got out of that fast lane and I pulled back and I really looked at myself and I realized that I was really, really screwed up. I was band-aiding all my emotions, none of which I could name. I was band-aiding them with uh, copious amounts of alcohol and Valium, often in combination. <laughs> so, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing I'm still standing. And so that's where I started, actually. I started at AA. Uh, with my recovery and I was just there a few weeks and I got so much clarity from withdraw withdrawing the uh, you know, poison from my brain that I thought I wonder about meditating now this Francesca was so many years ago people didn't meditate and I just saw a little a little tiny ad in a newspaper remember there were newspapers and <laughs> so I, <laughs> I followed up on that uh, this was pre-internet and I I learned to meditate and I injected that into my consciousness and wow, you know, the terrain really changed. Uh, I, within, within months, I was truly, you know, a very different person. And I thought, you, you know, I knew I'd had uh, a, a, an extensive incestuous relationship with my father, who I adored, uh, who was still living. And I was, uh, uh, I had memories of my mother knowing, but I, I knew she would never acknowledge it. And so I decided the way to come to grips with that was to write a book. And my first book, Truth Heals, was really the product of some, 
I can't recall now, but 20, 25 years of writing, you know, a line at a time. It was a, it was a journal that became a book. And um, it, it, uh, it, when it was published, it was before the days when anyone except Oprah was talking about sexual abuse. Uh, so it, uh, it uh, caused, uh, you know, a lot, of, um, a lot of problems for me. My family basically shunned me. And uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to interject because I know that it's graphic, but it is on your website. And so just to give our um, listeners um, a, a, a real sort of um, a reality check about what we're talking about. You're talking about uh, you were uh, two, three years old when mm -hmm. you were starting to be molested by your father. You were um, actually raped by your father when you were uh, nine, I believe. Six. And it all and it all ended when I was twelve. Just okay. Ended. And and so and then you went on to go work in his law practice, mm -hmm. and a lot of the um, uh, things that you detail in your um, experience in your website and and in your writing have to do with the fact that it's about power and control as much as it is and secrecy and 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 the lying that you learn mm -hmm. to uh incorporate into your life which i would suspect you're saying manifested in your case uh in much of the, in the cancer somatically right um, and, and i i went into uh again before i uh, was had recovered from cancer i went in to the field of energy work because i had a session with a um, and an energy practitioner posing as a massage therapist. <laughs> I had this session with this gal and uh, I all of a sudden I had a lot more memories than I'd had before. I mean, I remembered the abuse, but I had it compartmentalized mm -hmm. and I used to take it out and think about it about once a week. And in that case, I had a little bit of a split personality. I called that person, not Deborah, but Cindy. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just to protect myself. And so I would roll this memory out at night uh, when I was in bed. I wrote about once a week. So, you know, it was a very familiar memory. And, and when I finally just sat down and wrote about it and talked about it and uh, met with my mother and talked to her about it, the, um, the incidences, the Cindy disappeared. She just disappeared because I, well, I, I, um, uncompartmentalized my brain it became all one memory and one experience and so I didn't need that I didn't need that divide or that facade which right. I thought was pretty interesting I remember observing that and thinking isn't that interesting right right no mm -hmm. for sure having that um, it being able to integrate that narrative yeah. and the reality of your own life yeah and you and you mentioned that your, uh, it blew your family apart when your book was published, it became mm -hmm. public. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether or not you hesitated to say anything uh, publicly because you feared the repercussion or if it had just gotten to the point where you had to share your story because you wanted had to help to. people? Had to and, did n and no longer cared. Now, I also, because I became very involved, uh, one, of the, one of the biggest aspects of my recovery was this amazing energy work. So first I became a student of it. Then I became a teacher of it. I remember hanging around the, the teaching workshops and teachers saying to me, oh, you're going to teach this. And I'm like, are you kidding? I'm a busy lawyer. <laughs> Little did I know. Um, and then I finally just opened a private practice where I worked with people. And I was astonished at the number of sexually abused people who came in my office. I didn't have a sign over my door that I was aware of. 
but it was just like a parade of people, not all women, also men, and also perpetrators. And so I did that for, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, and so I have quite a um, uh, vast experience in, in this field. And um, I, I have sort of um, moved on from it. And I don't think about it until I, you know, seen something on the news. Well, for a lot of people, what's been in the news lately, especially, um, you know, the allegations against people like uh, Woody Allen and even the Larry Nassar, because even though he might have mm -hmm. not been biologically uh, related to these uh, young gymnasts, they were children. And clearly he was um, in a sort of parental caregiving role. Absolutely. But, you know, for the, for the strict purposes of, so those can be triggering situations for a lot of people who are home listening to the news, watching the news, and then um, feeling as though it's just a bit overwhelming because the numbers are quite high of uh, women shot children who have been victims of childhood, family, sexual abuse, of incest, they're actually much higher than I think people even imagine and probably higher than even is on record because uh, not everybody uh, records this. Nobody records the, the vast majority of it goes unreported. So just take those numbers that you read, that one in every three women and one in every five men and double or triple it. You know, it's a, it's a pretty high number. And, and it, you mentioned early on when we first started talking that it's, it's not so much about sex as it is about power. And that's totally the case. It's so totally can you explain that dynamic a little bit in terms of how it plays out in terms of what it is that a kid is feeling and um, thinking or not thinking when someone who is charged with their care begins using them in a way that is only about their own pleasure in this pleasure. case? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, uh, you know, most children repress it and don't remember it. That's what usually happens. And to uh, every therapist knows this, and I teach it, that you would never uh, push someone or ask someone, if you suspect they've been abused, you would never bring it up. Because all you'll do, if they have that protective mechanism in place, that repression from childhood, you'll just uh, uh, push it deeper and, and possibly disturb them uh, to a point where they're, you know, they, they're not functional. So that, that's a, a really important cautionary rule is you, you never, ever quiz someone. I mean, when I, I can tell when I just look at somebody if they've been abused and I would never bring it up. They have to bring it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we can work on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do with having this conversation right now is to normalize the conversation around the fact that family childhood sexual abuse or incest often is not talked about or named properly, even though if you do a simple Google search and you hit the news button, you'll see dozens within the last week um, or weeks uh, from all around the country and all around the world of reports of documented uh, people who've been mm -hmm. arrested that is actually part of the charge that is included, uh, it's not as though it's a secret, but it's something that nobody wants to discuss because they would say, not me, not my home, not my stuff. And, and too distasteful. Mm -hmm. Most people, I think, feel a sense of repugnance. Like the Woody Allen thing, I find it very distasteful. Um, and, and um, you know, I think that's a common reaction. Mm -hmm. So then how do we change the conversation about not making it distasteful, but making it something that is part and parcel to the conversation so that 
in my hope would be, and I would suspect yours as well, to begin to change the root causes of what is the genesis of this behavior in the perpetrator in the first place so that it doesn't continue to happen. Because what I see is that so many women who are the victims of childhood family sexual abuse or incest end up in the kind of a situation that you did or me. You heal later, you figure out things later as an adult. By then, it's not like you're going to really, you know, do much with the person who's the perpetrator. Oftentimes, they're dead, deceased, long gone, moved on. You've established a different kind of life in many ways. Not mm -hmm. all, but sometimes. And then you will have realized, as you did through a life of substance abuse, as I did through a life of um, uh, drinking as well, that you end up perpetuating more problems in your life because you've been trying to manage this amorphous, um, not really secret. 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 Yeah. And you're also managing a huge amount of shame because what the dynamic is that the adult feels shamed by his or her actions. They know this isn't right. They feel compelled to do it. And once, once they've engaged in it once, then it's, wow, it's very addictive. So uh, they'll engage in it again. So they have all the shame. What do they do with it? They deposit it in you, the child. You pick up on all the, the child always blames themselves anyway for everything that goes wrong in the family. They certainly blame themselves for this. And then they'll have another caregiver like their mother saying, well, it's your fault. You were too seductive at three. So the child grows up with all this shame with a pattern of having experienced this Usually it's unconscious. They don't normally remember it. They just feel shameful. And then the next thing, they find themselves doing the same thing as an adult with their children, their nieces, the neighbor kids. It, re it repeats itself. It repeats itself and this cycle of abuse uh, as it's kept a secret, as we've seen in institutions, for mm -hmm. example, we've seen the, the Catholic Church. Correct. You know, we've seen it, uh, you know, in, in various institutions, mm -hmm. you know, the whole blow up in, in Hollywood in terms of cover ups for the kind of uh, workplace sexual harassment or abuse. I think that that uh, is all a really important conversation, but because it's out there with famous people and with people who are in high profile positions, it's grabbing a certain amount of uh, attention uh, and headlines. But this is much more insidious. On the other hand, it's very much a part of what is currently in the ether uh, with the most popular TV show uh, that we have right now, Game of Thrones. Uh, two of the folks that are on there uh, are brother and sister, and they are in an openly incestuous relationship where they fathered uh, three kids. And in your research and in your teachings, you've talked about the fact that this goes back a long time. I'm not saying that it's correct. I'm saying that uh, incest as such is not a new phenomenon. No, not at all. And it was totally correct then. Uh, you know, for, for, those, for those more, um, uh, those earlier societies, that's how they chose their next monarch, the monarch. That, what, what, can you just give us an example? Like the well, like the Hawaiians, for example. Um, you know, they, they felt that uh, to, to, they had to have a leader that came from that bloodline, a leader that carried the godlike features. So, you know, the early societies believed that their king or their queen uh, was uh, the representative of the divine that would lead them to lead them to safety, lead them to happiness, lead them to a, you know, a life they'd be proud of. And so it was terribly important to them that they stay in that 
in that uh, direct family line. And so uh, brothers and sisters had to marry and had to reproduce mm -hmm. to have the next king or queen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, was, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't done for, if, if you just look at the whole uh, Hawaiian uh, story uh, as really a great example, it wasn't done for reasons of ma amassing wealth. It wasn't done for anything uh, incorrect. It was, it was really done to preserve the um, connection to the divine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And given that, uh, just as an example of it existing in history, it's not something that we have not uh, lived with for uh, many, many years, and yet it continues to be the thing that is, uh, and for good reason, taboo. But it Well, it became, it became taboo because of the birth defects that result from uh, uh, that practice. That's, that's where the taboo came from. And so the, the churches started to, uh, and not that long ago, you understand. So in our cellular memory, each and every one of us humans has this memory. Uh, but for the last, what, 500 years, it's been taboo. Maybe not that long. Uh, and so, you know, we're, as a society, we're torn. We, we you know, it's like we, we believe that um, monogamy is the way to go, but that's a fairly current belief. Uh, most most monotheistic religions, <laughs> very recently, some of them even today, believe that, yeah, you could have a number of wives, of course, so that you can uh, have lots of children. Right. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of changing I ideas and mores, but I think that there's nobody here that would suggest that you would want to invite any kind of a relationship that you had, for example, with your father in that position of subjugation and having... Um... No, it's very, it's very patriarchal. Right. So let's talk about that because that's really the larger container that I think this is in when it comes it to power and when it comes about uh, the perpetuation of abuse by the abuser. You recently wrote a post um, in which you were uh, talking about part of what needs to be addressed in terms of the perpetrator is awareness, acknowledgement, appropriate punishment, forgiveness, and redemption. Can you talk about how that fits in with patriarchy and toxic masculinity and the abuse of power? Well, it's the only way we're going to resolve the problem. If, if, we, if we continue to simply uh, treat our perpetrators the way we're treating Larry Nassar, for example, which I thought was, I think that the sentence was correct. I, I doubt Larry Nassar can be rehabilitated and, and, and set free to wander schoolyards. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I wanted uh, Larry Nasser to be sent to a place where he could use his medical training to help, um, you know, people in poverty or, you know, still in prison. But think, think of all the ways that he could be redeemed. When he's redeemed, this affects each and every one of us because we are all connected. So as long as we are simply punishing but not offering a path of redemption, we are not an enlightened society. Well, why is it that people are not willing to see that as a possibility in any way, shape, or form, whether it's um, him or someone who has done, uh, you know, for example, a murderous activity or, or whatnot? You know, how, how does this... How well, it's the same, same reason we still have the death penalty. It's another absurd um, um, choice of managing 
society because it, it doesn't take us as a as a group up it takes us down it's 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 a reduction in consciousness to think that if we if we engage in murder that we are somehow uh, resolving something so what's keeping us from looking at this in a way that holds the victim sacred and knows that they have no part in you know having contributed to the origin of having been abused and needing to make sure that they are uh, held and being able to get the kind of therapeutic uh, help and recovery uh, that they need so that they don't take on uh, shame and, and, and live a life that's contracted and otherwise you know not free while also holding the space of saying, and for anyone who has been a perpetrator, uh, we need to have there be an opportunity for uh, rehabilitation and uh, some kind of um, awareness of the root causes of what it was that was the origin of the abuse to begin with. I think the solution is precisely what we're doing right now. We're talking about this in an open way with no um, no reticence, no shame. And if we can get everybody to do that, we can resolve this problem because this is an illness. These, these perpetrators are, are on the whole really ashamed and they would love uh, healing. Uh, it's an illness. It's mm -hmm. an illness. Let's shift the conversation back for a second to victims and the folks who are really kind of coming out saying, you know, I'm being abused, I've been abused, I'm finally speaking out, I have a lot of anger. Um, for example, uh, in the case of uh, workplace sexual harassment, uh, as a young actress, I know Rose McGowan has been making the rounds mm -hmm. lately doing talk shows uh, with her new book, I think it's called Brave, discussing how she was the victim of um, uh, Harvey Weinstein, um, and whomever else, I don't, I don't know if there was anyone else. <clears throat> and what is needed, is, is outrage a part of a journey of healing? I think so. Or is it, or, yeah. or, or do people stop there? And, you know, does, what, what happens when? Well, it, it's so interesting that you mentioned Rose McGowan, because I'm watching it and, and hoping that I'm going to see her hit the next level any moment because I think she's been locked in a cycle of outrage for 20 years. This, this incident, is, as I recall, happened 20 years ago. And I would have preferred that she be able to work through it as I did, say within five, at the most 10, but not take up 20 years of your valuable life in outrage, which is not a healthy place to be. It's, it's a very negative state of mind. It's, it's not uplifting her. She can do more good for people, I think, by moving on to the next stage. Uh, her book, her book by the way, I'm, I'm reading it right now, and uh, it's, it's great. But um, the, the thing I found uh, pretty interesting is that before she had the Harvey Weinstein incident, alleged incident, uh, she, she was raised in a cult. Um, and so she already had a sign on her forehead that said, abuse me. Well, can you speak to that? Because I think there, there is uh, research to, and evidence to support that, and this was alluded to in a piece that I wrote recently for Medium on this issue of incest and um, uh, how it relates to the Me Too thing, is that a lot of folks who, um, I know one media executive who had sort of scanned the room for the folks that he thought might be more apt to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. vulnerable. And then um, those were the people that he ended up 
you know, cajoling into acts or situations that were not um, helpful, that were harmful to these women. And so, like you say, the sign on the head, it's almost like an animal, like you can sniff it in the air, who I can mess with mm -hmm. and who I can. Can you talk about that and what women who have not yet come to full awareness of the depth of their abuse, what they may be uh, unwittingly, I don't know what is it. Sending a signal out because I did it. And of course I wasn't aware that I was sending the signal out, but first there was my father, then there was a priest to whom my father confessed. And then the priest said to himself, the parish priest, small town, he thought, oh, now I have a new victim. <laughs> so uh, then I moved from the priest to a, to a, uh, an oral surgeon uh, who was actually arrested and convicted for molesting a whole series of patients when they were under the anesthetic. Uh, so yeah, you're, you're literally giving off a vibe of, I'm vulnerable, I, I can be used for, for your, uh, you know, your needs. And, and so when we look at then the setup of that, the origin of it being in the home, under the roof of where oftentimes is a competent, well-educated, middle-class family. I mean, this is an issue that cuts across race and class and you know, situations. Um, how does a kid say to a parent, you know, this is not, this is what's happening and I can't, you know, do this anymore. You can't abuse me. You can't use me. And, you know, how, how do you wake up the quote unquote parent who's looking the other way or who isn't aware or says they're well, not? Well, the aware? kid's never going to uh, confront the person doing the abuse. They don't, they don't have that much power. And they're even afraid to tell a school nurse or a teacher, let alone their mother or aunt or grandmother. You know, it's, it's a terrifying experience for a child. It's much easier just to repress the thing. So that's why the incidence of reporting is so low. Uh, ch children are, are baffled. They, they are dumbfounded because it strikes them as wrong. That's the message the perpetrator is sending to them is the shame. So they think, you know, I don't think this is right. Uh, it, could, it can also be painful. Uh, it's done in secrecy. They're told not to tell. I mean, uh, it, it's, hardly, uh, it, it's hardly a setting where the child's going to run out and tell somebody, even if they've received training, you know, as children do these days. That, that, that will, of course, bring improvements, but they're slow to come. But can you also talk about the mixed feelings that when a child is dependent on their caregiver for basic platonic parental love, care, and affection, that there's a certain trust that is put on this person who is the caregiver from the child to sort of want to believe and hope that this really isn't maybe happening or it's not as bad as I think it is or not as bad as I think. Yeah. Or they, or they, they treat me nicely in other certain situations. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I, I need to go along with this in order to get that. Well, my own situation I've discovered having now seen thousands of people uh, uh, in, in private uh, situations. And I work with volunteers now in workshops um, is that, there's a quite a trade-off going on for the child. Uh, I was daddy's girl. You know, how often does that happen? 
and he You're protected mm -hmm. he, he protected me from my mother who despised me because she knew see she knew so there was always this dynamic this is a really common dynamic in families even where there's no abuse it's a very common dynamic for the parent for for the parent of the opposite sex to form an alliance with the child against the parent of the other sex because he or she hates their job sick of their marriage whatever it might be and and they get uh, they, they form an emotional alliance with the child usually around the age of four or five this is really common no abuse present just a dynamic in the family and so you know as a child you gain quite a bit because you've got this parent that likes you the most but in your case you were abused by the parent who allowed and you. and and he adored me and i adored him so it was very confusing for me very confusing because you went on even as an adult to work for him in the law firm yeah we were partners and uh, again he never even looked at me after i was 12. he was truly a pedophile only I children i got too old interesting mm-hmm which isn't always the case. You also write about Mackenzie Phillips uh, in your, uh, you know, work and, and talk about the fact that she had an uh, adult relationship with her. And that, you know, don't, Francesca, don't you relate to that one with the most distaste? I mean, don't we, aren't we just horrified when we think about an adult parent with an adult child? In her case, it was so grim. I could, even I could barely uh, stand to hear about it or read about it. What about this um, Dylan Farrow, Woody Allen uh, story that is making headlines right now? Some people have s said uh, and, con you know, saying that, th that they're conflating his marriage to, uh, you know, the Mia Farrow's adopted daughter. His um, daughter. His daughter. And his daughter. Um, that they're conflating that with um, the Dylan Farrow accusations but i think that there's a growing uh concern now that this is not anything that was fabricated and um that it seems as though he's starting to lose money deals you know shows Good. Good. Um, around this how do you think this could possibly galvanize people toward looking not just at the hollywood you know, famous person takedown, but put the spotlight on the fact that there was abuse happening in a home. I think it's easy for people to separate themselves from the Woody Allen experience and the Mackenzie Phillips experience. They'll just say, well, you know, that, that kind of thing is grotesque. It doesn't happen in our family. We're Presbyterian. I, I'm, you know, just throwing that out there. Uh, not picking on the Presbyterians, but you know, they'll have, you know, we're, we're upstanding members of the community. We belong to the, you know, Chamber of Commerce, uh, something to distinguish themselves. People don't want to look at this dynamic in the family, but it is terribly common. Mm -hmm. And Woody and Allen is, is, is it's highly visible. That's why we're looking at him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
when we're looking at the next part of the conversation, you say you and I are talking right now, we're having the conversation openly and we're trying to shed light on it. Um, I've shared some of my story with you, um, which has to do with the fact that I had a narcissistic father and he was uh, certainly sexually inappropriate and emotionally abusive in many ways. And, you know, my uh, recollections of that uh, inappropriate relationship came around uh, midlife. I was in my early 30s, and um, that was more um, after I had had other big traumas and ruptures. And so one sort of cracked open this other piece. Uh, so for a long time, there was in me that conflict, like you had described, of, you know, sort of shame and addiction and that whole cycle of, of uh, feeling as though it is your fault perhaps or that there's something wrong with you mm -hmm. and I think that there's a lot of women out there who are women they're not children who have suffered abuse at the hands of their brothers and grandfathers and stepfathers and uncles and um, parents and father uh, who don't really have words to describe what's going on with them they don't know how to pinpoint it because they maybe haven't had the breakthrough yet. What would you say might be some questions to women who are feeling like this all is cutting a little too close to home. They might think something is up. Where would they go with that? What would they do? Well, I think what they've done is they've all said me too. They aren't saying me too to that, but they're saying me too to just like, look, you know, that, that kind of thing has happened to me they may very well be thinking privately about the incident with their brother or their uncle uh, and not, not talking about it yet, but they at least feel safe to jump on the bandwagon here and say, you know, that, that creep when I was, uh, you know, in college, you see, they're starting. This is, this is the beginning of a gigantic wave of, of uh, resistance to the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really, that's really what's going on here. And I'm, I'm so in favor of that and writing about the patriarchy and it's, it's negative effects on all of us, men and women, because men are just as punished by this as women are. They don't want to be part of a patriarchy either. Not a thinking man, not a modern thinking contemporary guy. Um, so we, we all want to get away. The pendulum swung 5,000 years ago, way over there. And who cares what caused it? You know, whether it was, could have been writing by the way. Um, but it, it just doesn't matter. Now, now we're coming into a, a new age, um, and it's time, it's time for all of us to, you know, start talking about this openly, uh, the, the uh, inequity. So what's your average thinking man who's relatively intelligent, who thinks he's somewhat enlightened and somewhat fair and even, you know, uh, you know feminist to whatever degree, uh, you know, believes in equality, let's say, okay? Uh, what, what, what would you say that he would need to know about incest and what would be important for them to be talking to other men about, about incest? Because even in your, uh, you know, website, you talk about the fact that Freud himself uh, was abused by a nanny. Sigmund Freud, the famed psychoanalyst, was abused by a caregiver. And then when he had clients come to him, female clients that claimed that they were, in fact, being sexually molested by their uh, family members, their fathers, their uh, uncles or stepfathers, whatever they were, um, did he believe them? But then he recanted and um, sort of switched gears on that. So I don't, I, I think men oftentimes, um, you know, they equate 
They want research. They want facts. They want proof. Um, how do they start? How, where do we start the conversation on this? Well, just them? to back up and, and, and chat about Freud for a minute, I was always fascinated by that story because no one talked about it in college or in psychology. It was completely ignored, the fact that Freud had a string of women uh, come to him for help. And as I recall, it was labeled hysteria, the, the disorder they had. And they all had the same disorder. And when he interviewed, you know, uh, and did an intake on each one of these women, they had the same story of, of when he finally dug deep enough, they would confide in him they'd been abused. And so he came out with what he thought was this amazing um, uh, piece of new information for society that women are being sexually abused. And he was immediately shunned by everyone that counted, everyone that paid him, wherever his source of revenue was, got shut off, and he recanted. He backed up. He said, oh, I must have been mistaken. Um, this is really the most amazing thing of, of Freud's whole career, and it's never talked about. So the patriarchy has its toehold in very deep in us, very deep. And I don't think men talk about uh, this at all. Uh, I was really astonished. The blog that uh, you referenced, that uh, you read, where I talk about bringing some balance, I'm hoping, uh, to the next phase of the Me Too movement, uh, I, I posted it on, psych on Psychology Today. And um, I was really surprised to see how many comments I got from men uh, uh, on that platform, thoughtful, educated men, successful men who told me something I didn't realize uh, because that's not where I'm hanging out these days. Uh, I didn't realize how horrified they were about their uh, risks in the workplace. Uh, one guy wrote in and said, we're no longer uh, hanging around the water cooler and talking about the hot girl in the office. We're hanging around talking about how we would rather pay the fine for lack of diversity than get entangled in a much more expensive lawsuit over, over uh, sexual harassment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you understand his point, mm -hmm. that it'd be easier just not to have any women in the workplace. Well, and it's easy for me to lose weight when I don't have any cookies in the house, but that doesn't mean that it's illegal to have cookies in the house. I should be able to have a certain amount of control over what I put in my mouth. Oh, yeah, I'm not agreeing with his, his point of view. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it because it hadn't occurred to me that that could be what men in, in, in the corporate world were thinking right now. I think they're puzzled. Mm -hmm. You might, might know way more about this than I do. Well, my, from, my, from where I sit, <clears throat> in my experience, what I've seen is that men say, you'll, you'll hear this with people who are, um, you know, people of color might say, for example, you know, people with white skin privilege have no concept, no idea uh, what it's like to be the one who is asked for a receipt when they're leaving a store because they are asked to be checked about whether or not what they have is something that they actually bought. And if that's never something that happened to you as a white person, you wouldn't understand the sort of, um, you know, the ether that we're in, in terms of racism, right? Even right. Though, as I recall, got- uh, Yeah, because we're swimming in the ocean of it, we can't see it. And the same with patriarchy, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. Right? And patriarchy yeah. in that way are very uh, analogous. And mm -hmm. so um, to that end, I've heard from men say, uh, you know, we just didn't know it was this bad. 
and of course, uh, in much the same way that people of color, uh, you know, sort of are frustrated, hand wringing, like, well, we've been telling you that it's been an issue for so long, a couple hundred um, years, right? And, right, and and so that the same that the same I've heard from men about this, like, well, I didn't know, well, I don't believe it, and I've also heard this from men who have been inappropriate sexually. And so the level of deceit within the person who is actually saying, I can't believe it or I don't know, is just showing a level of uh, lack of awareness in terms of what mm -hmm. even is, uh, what equality looks like and even means. Uh -huh. I, I mean, you know, with, with two adults, there's a certain degree of agency, right? With children, there's no agency. There's right. always subjugation. So, you know, um, and, and the more, I think, in touch you get spiritually with meditation practices and that kind of thing, you, you bring online more agency, more prefrontal cortex, more of your own awareness, right? So you're not just going off of like we were talking about earlier, women who have a sign on their head or something, right? You're not, you're more aware of whatever that might be, that programming that's mm -hmm. in there like you said, somatically. Uh -huh. so I don't know how aware men are necessarily of the fact that, yes, all women have had to deal with um, feeling pressure around the issue of uh, unwanted advances of some kind. Right. Every woman on the planet. The, 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 the one of the points of my blog was, I want to see levels, though, uh, this was Bill Maher's point a few weeks ago. We need to see levels. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I want to support the Me Too movement. And I'm part of it. Of course, I just was a little early. I was in the you know, vanguard of it. But I, I still want to see, um, uh, I want to see due process and, and levels of, of uh, not every crime is the same. Not, not every act is the same. Um, uh, an act of inappropriate exhibition of your own body is not the same as raping someone. And yet we're, we, we seem to be lumping everybody in the same container and throwing them out into the ocean, saying your career's over, uh, your, your work will no longer be valued. Um, you, you, can't, you can't come to the academies. I, I hear what you're saying. What I would say, though, is that I do know that a lot of women who would say that I was traumatized by that exposure, I was an ingenue, or I was innocent, and I was, you know, um, uh, in the case of, for example, young actresses and things, mm -hmm. I was not, um, this was not something I asked for. It scarred me, you know, in that way. Uh, and so in that way, um, I think that recognizing that there is a level of trauma present with that, um, that the person totally. is, is, is part and parcel to then recognizing that there are degrees of trauma, for example, if a person is, uh, you know, raped by multiple people or, you know, at knife point. And, and, and yeah, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, if that's, if I'm understanding. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not discounting the pain that an individual may have suffered. I'm simply saying our, uh, our hopefully in a society is enlightened to the point where, where we acknowledge the fact that we have a uh, justice system where we have degrees of, of guilt. 
<clears throat> Don't you think at this moment, though, that there is already this backlash coming out from men who say, kind of like with the water cooler conversation that you were saying about these men saying on the um, blog that you published, where it's like, we're not ready for this. We don't want to have to change. We just want to have it not be around. How then are men going to be educated to start acting differently? Because isn't there a certain need to educate people as to what is appropriate and inappropriate behavior that isn't just some pat, um, you know, sexual harassment video that they watch and sign off on when they, you know, start a new job or something or have their annual review or whatever, um, that they know mm -hmm. what the guidelines are. What is the, what is the, where is the healing preemptively? Not in terms of restorative justice, but where is the preemptive? Yeah, how do we stop the thing? Yeah. Yeah, well, here we are talking about it and even people who aren't perpetrators right like even people who aren't yeah. perpetrators who were once victims of abuse but for people who are regular semi-enlightened guys who need to have a different viewpoint frankly or perspective on what's going on and how they cannot just be bystanders saying well it wasn't me I, well and i think again this is the conversation it needs to happen everywhere not just between uh, the two of us but and I think it is happening a lot. I think people are having it also with themselves. I think every woman uh, that, that, that's around, uh, you know, in the, in the modern world right now is thinking to herself, well, what happened to me? What about that incident when I was a junior in high school? What, what was that really? I think everyone is having these thoughts, and men included. I think they're thinking, oh, God, I wonder if, um, if that was sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. But then there's this whole other thing of resentment and backlash that's coming out because some women are saying, uh, you know, we need to just keep on, you know, keep on keeping on saying that this was wrong and there's no room for uh, nuance about this conversation. And then there are other folks uh, that say, as you do, that um, we need to be able to see it as a spectrum and we have to be able to address it uh, on multiple levels. And um, we have to have room for improvement, change of behavior, redemption. We have to. We have to. It has to be the whole thing. We can't just be throwing everybody in a cauldron and, you know, and that's the end of their life. That, that, that's not that's not an enlightened society so moving toward an enlightened society also a lot of times people have to get out of their trauma they have to not just be stuck in that um, you know trauma time and uh, shame spiral and find ways to that's Rose McGowan I would have hoped that ten years ago with therapy with the kind of work I do that she could have moved on and have more of a perspective she feels uh, and my heart goes out to her, but she feels very trapped by her trauma. And that it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. I mean, terrible things happen to us. We need to deal with them and then move on. I'm not, I'm not saying that she shouldn't uh, be in the vanguard of the movement and writing books about it, but she feels trapped to me, very trapped. Mm -hmm. That is not a healthy state of mind. That can hurt you. It can really hurt you. Your, your happiness level, your health, um, I, I don't advise it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, um, there's two kinds of help that people often need to get uh, if they are willing to speak out. And one is um, if they have uh, immediate sort of medical attention that they need, and then if they have uh, emotional, you know, therapeutic, um, you know, work that they do w by contacting an organization like RAIN, uh, right. for 
example, or, or finding a, a therapist, a personal therapist, or group therapy for that matter. But then there's also the more spiritual work that you're talking about, which has to do with uh, a, a more reconciliation internally about, you know, where am I going to take my life uh, forward. Um, but I do just want to backtrack, because I think this is the crux of the issue, uh, is that People who I know who have families who are, um, they have a young woman who came forward to say that she was incested by her father, for example, uh, that the family gets blown up. It isn't the same. There's long-seated resentments. People don't talk about it. And there's hell to pay afterwards. And I guess I just wanted to circle back to that before we kind of wind down because I want to know what you would say, given your experience in this arena, what you would say to anyone who's in the midst of that right now. Well, that this too will pass, uh, but not quickly. People form alliances in families, you know, that's us against you and them against me kind of a feeling. And I, I think what I would really say is that you, you will rise above this. You, uh, the person who has brought this information to the family, you're healing your family tree. It's much less likely to occur in the next generation for your children, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, because you have come forward and talked about it. It's much less likely to occur. It does heal the family tree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so don't expect it to have a... I would say a, a quick resolution necessarily and and it may be are you saying that certain relationships you do lose or that are uh, in fact um, not repaired or not capable of repair but it's worth the price if you will of uh, sharing the story and airing it out that was my own personal experience is that I've had some relationships that never really uh, you know survived but I felt it was way worth it. It was the, you know, the, the key things I did for myself in my life were getting a handle on addictive behavior, learning to meditate, and confronting the abuse. That's what empowered me. That's what made me who I am today. Without those three things, I'd, I'd be very, a very troubled person. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what I urge people to do. Yeah, really take on um, their own healing. And um, to that end, we know that there's the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N.org, and the National Center for Victims of Crime, the NCVC, also has a lot of resources, and um, Voices in Action also has a lot of resources there. Uh, uh -huh. and you're available too. I guess the next level is, um, like you say, the, the conversation about patriarchy, systemic patriarchy, and what to do about the lack of equality. Because I know Gloria Steinem told me uh, herself when I was interviewing her a couple of years ago, you know, she's like, we're linked, we're not ranked. Wow, that's a beautiful saying. Mm -hmm. You know, we're linked, we're not ranked. Right. And so there's so much about that, right? Because in the ranking is the separation, that space in between, which creates further division uh -huh. because it's this perceived separation when in fact, as mammals, we exist in interrelatedness and in community. We need people, as you mm -hmm. know, right? We need mm -hmm. our caregivers to take care of us and we need other people. We, to need, our, we need our tribe. We need our tribe mm -hmm. and our collective tribe can grow, right? 
we don't just need to um, limit our tribe to our neighborhood or our family or, and I think that's part of it is it's the, it's the loyalty thing. People are loyal to their family. And a lot of times people are loyal to their suffering and to their secrets at their own expense. Oh, totally. I see that more often than the reverse is that, you know, that's that um, negative pleasure where you, you, you really, you, you know, the thing's hurting you, but you want to hold on to it. That's a little bit the Rose McGowan thing. Because it serves how in what way? It, it, people get locked in a cycle of, of negative pleasure. Somehow it feeds, uh, you know, it, it, it can be, um, you know, a, uh, a resentment or a jealousy. You know, they really get locked in a behavior. And, and, and it's a downward cycle. It's not an upward cycle. So it's you're, more not, you're not becoming a happier, better person because of it. So it's more a habit then. So what's on the other side? What would be better? What's more on, what, what, what's the thing that hasn't been experienced perhaps by someone locked in that kind of a place, mm -hmm. but yet, you know, it, that it's on the other side of the rainbow. It is the pot of gold. And if you got there and you had it, you would know like that, how much richer it could be. Well, and that's why you and I both teach meditation. <laughs> There's the pot of gold. Really. Well, the key there for me is the being able to sit with yourself mm -hmm. without having there be some nasty story attached to it about I'm not worthy, I'm a terrible person, uh -huh. or some version of that. And to just be in the space that is allowing and fluid, and it's not even a container, but it makes there, there, there is enough space to hold the shadow side and the light mm -hmm. and for that kind of migration toward uh, self-investigation, interrogation and rehabilitation for everyone, not just for, yeah. you know, the perpetrator or for the victim or whomever, you know? Yeah, no, I've thought for a, a, a lifetime here that if I could teach the world to meditate, we'd be far better off. You know, we're the only uh, culture that has, failed to give our children this gift that we don't know how to. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't, but uh, you know, all previous uh, uh, higher valued cultures did mm -hmm. in one form or another, whatever they might've called it. Well, I think we do have a focus on um, prayer here, but I'm not sure that that is exactly what um, we're talking about in terms of getting to some of the, you know, deeper issues that, uh -huh. that the, the interrogation stage that, that oftentimes meditation. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to um, wrap it up there, Deborah. If you have anything else that you wanted to add or say or share um, about your website and your uh, latest projects and how people can find you. Well, I would say that if, if people are troubled by the topic we're on today of, of uh, um, sexual issues that my my first book, Truth Heals, is pretty much on point. It would definitely answer a lot of questions for someone who's trying to figure out, you know, what they should tell themselves or what they should do next about that. Um, I, I really did uh, cover it pretty thoroughly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Truth Heals and your new book, um, Heal Yourself, Heal the World, is uh, out by Simon & Schuster. That's new. And, um, you know, Deborah, I, I, I know this is a very... Um, it's a topic with a lot of tendrils 
and um, it's it's mm-hmm. it's very uh, sensitive in a lot of ways. It's not easy to discuss necessarily. There's no right way or wrong way, I don't think, to have the conversation. But I think having a conversation about it, which we did today, is at least a step in the direction of trying to open up some space and trying to uh-huh. say, you know, this is um, one thing that maybe in the shadow that we can bring some light to. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's been great talking to you about it. Deborah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Take good care. All right, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.